1: Committed is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Quick warning. This episode contains a story about mental health and a suicide attempt and could be potentially triggering. On the morning of September 25th in the year 2000, 19-year-old Kevin Hines took a muni bus through the streets of San Francisco to the Golden Gate Bridge. He was shaking and crying like a child, but no one seemed to notice. At the time, he believed that nobody cared about him and that nobody loved him. He arrived at the bridge, got off the bus, walked to the middle, and approached the railing. He was terrified and tentative, but the voices in his head told him to keep going. To go over. To end his life.
5: I was compelled to die by a brain that was shattered and voices in my head that told me what I had to do when I didn't want to do those things.
4: He jumped. But the second his hands left that guardrail, Kevin regretted it. He fell 240 feet in four seconds. By the time he slammed into the water at 75 miles an hour, all he wanted was to live. The chances of surviving a leap from the Golden Gate Bridge like that one are 1%. But Kevin did survive. He survived, he got treatment, and years later, he met his wife, Margaret. And even though he still lives with mental illness, he's still chronically suicidal, he'll never attempt it again. When the voices that still live in Kevin's head tell him to end it all, he turns to Margaret. He says three words. I need help. I'm Joe Piazza. This is committed. start this episode before Kevin even met Margaret, because everything that happened before he met her influenced how their relationship unfolded and what it looks like today.
5: The best place to start this story is uh, the, the day I was born. I was born to biological parents who I believe loved me and my brother unconditionally, but who could not take care of us.
4: Kevin's biological family lived in and out of 6th Street Tenderloin motels, sleeping on box springs for mattresses or sometimes on the cold concrete slab floor. They often paid by the hour. His parents did whatever they had to do to pay the motel bills, including selling
5: drugs. When we were taken away, my brother and I, into protective custody by social services and, and uh, foster care system and placed in foster care you know we we bounced around from home to home with the idea that me and my brother would be adopted together and then we both got a vicious strain of bronchitis and Ash died and that immediate loss loss of my birth parents loss of my brother would affect me for the rest of my days uh, in in the form of a a, a serious detachment disorder and a severe abandonment issues that follow me until today
4: Kevin was adopted by a couple named Deborah and Patrick Hines. Until the day he met Margaret, he says, this was the best thing that ever happened to him. He describes his upbringing as wonderful, beautiful even. He went to a great school, he did wrestling and football, but also theater and art programs. For the first time in his life, he was excited about his future.
5: And then at 17, my brain just broke just fell apart at the seams. At 17, I stood on a stage at Archbishop Reardon High School, stood on the stage, and 1,200 people filled the audience. Not one seat was open, and I believed they were all coming to kill me. It was my first severe symptom of the disease they would later say I had called bipolar. And it was the same brain disease both my biological parents were diagnosed with, called manic depression in their day. My mom comes to pick me up. And the look in her eyes when she looked into mine, you could tell she, she was terrified of, of the insanity brewing behind them. From 17 to 19, I was a... I and my family were... were destroyed by my brain. And its lack of ability to function to comprehend things that were normal to any other human being at my age. At 19, I, I couldn't take the, the weight of the struggle any longer. And the next thing that happened is, is I, I, I found myself at the Golden Gate Bridge, ready to die by my hands. Um, and I, I couldn't cope anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't rationalize being here. The voices in my head, auditory and visual hallucinations brought on by trauma had become so powerful so immense not that oh this is just this will be this will be the way what people don't know is it's not quick there are tens of ways to die off the Golden Gate Bridge 99% of them are slow and violent and 99% of those who attempt do die off the Golden Gate Bridge in that slow and violent way so it's a 1% chance of survival roughly.
4: But Kevin was that 1%. He regretted jumping the second his hands left the bridge, but by then he thought it was too late.
5: When you hit that water from that height at that speed, it's, it's like hitting a solid brick wall. You stop for less than a second. A vacuum then pulls you under the water about 70 feet. And then I opened my eyes. I was alive and I was drowning. And I didn't want to drown. I, 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 I couldn't even imagine why... I would jump into a giant body of water if I didn't want to drown, but it was it was the psychosis and the voices. Right before I jumped, said, "Jump now!" At, at decimals I can't express to anyone, without piercing eardrums if I if it, if I yelled it at the way the way that the voice did in my head.
4: Kevin swam seventy feet with just one breath without the use of his legs.
5: I get closer and closer to the lit circle of water above me, and I'm starting to convulse. I'm running out of air and I think I'm not going to make it. This is it. I'm going to die here today, and I don't want to. And a voice in my head said, No, Kevin, you can't die here. If you die here, no one will ever know you didn't want to. No no one will ever know you knew you made a mistake. I broke the surface. I bobbed up and down in the water, and I did the one thing I've had control over since kindergarten. I prayed. God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake. On repeat, God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake. And that is when something began circling beneath me something very large and very slimy and very much alive. And I remember freaking out, thinking, It's a shark. I didn't die off the Golden Gate Bridge, and a shark is going to eat me. And I'm waiting for it to bite off my arm or my leg or anything else, it just keeps circling faster and faster and faster. But then I realized, I'm no longer wading in the water. I'm no longer struggling to stay afloat. I'm lying atop it on my back, being kept buoyant by this thing, this creature. And finally I was like, this is one heck of a nice shark. And I named him Herbert, right there, because it, was just, it just popped into my head. It's Herbert, the whatever it is. But it
4: wasn't a shark. According to Kevin, Herbert was a sea lion. And a bystander later confirmed that. He told Kevin it looked like Herbert was trying to keep him afloat until the Coast Guard arrived to save him.
5: I call that a miracle. I don't know what you call it, but that's what I call it. And that was, my, at least, it was my miracle. The creature took off when the Coast Guard boat murmur was heard behind me, as in the engine in the water. Coast Guard pulls me onto a flatboard, straps me in from head to toe, and started asking questions. <laughs> The first question was, kid, do you know what you just did? And I was fully conscious and aware. I said, yeah. And they said, why? Why did you do that? And I had no answer. I said, I I don't know. I, I thought I had to die today.
4: Kevin's spinal vertebrae were crushed. His ankle was broken. He was rushed to the hospital and into surgery to repair his shattered spine. Coming off his suicide attempt and his recovery, Kevin was in and out of treatments, in and out of the psych ward. And then came another miracle.
5: I met Margaret in my third psych ward stay. I was a month into a two month stay. I had two months in the psych ward because none of my family or friends would house me, no one would take me in. It was her first outing to a psych ward to visit her cousin. She was not a patient.
4: Kevin wanted to be useful. It's something about him that you can tell right away, and you'll hear it in this interview. He kept asking his nurses how he could help out, what little things he could do to make their lives easier. He'd just been given a job cleaning out the psych ward's giveaway clothes closet. He boxed, binned, and labeled everything, and then he took what he wanted to wear. What he wanted to wear was a pink polo shirt, khaki cargo shorts, and sandals. He also grabbed himself a notebook, a clipboard, and a pen from the nurse's station. That's where he was standing when Margaret came to visit her cousin and tapped him on the shoulder,
5: thinking he worked there. And I looked into her eyes, and I was done. I knew this would be the rest of my life. I knew she would be the rest of my life. It really was love at first sight for for me. And... I was trying not to say this to her with all of my might. Like, don't, don't tell her you love her. You just met her. She doesn't know you. Calm down. And I said, uh, as a matter of fact, miss, I'm a volunteer. Now, I'm waiting for the entire nurse's station to freak out and scream, that's not accurate. He doesn't work here. He's a, he's a liar. You know, but they don't. And so they didn't say anything. And she says, well, I'm looking for my cousin. His name is, and it was this kid. And I walked her awkwardly to her cousin's room and Margaret says to him your nursing staff is so nice and he yells at the top of his lungs that guy that guy is a nutball that guy jumps off bridges don't talk to that guy and I literally ran inside the room and I said excuse me excuse me it was one bridge one bridge plural that's ridiculous she goes out and she goes why'd you lie to me I said, Margaret, I didn't lie to you. I'm a volunteer in this very hospital. I just happen to also live here.
2: At this point, I was thinking, they let these patients run loose around here. I'd never really been to a psych ward, and my idea of a psych ward was actually closer to, like, one flew over a cuckoo's nest than anything else. He asked me out. I kept thinking, no, no. Actually, more like, hell no, yeah, I'm not going help. out with you because you're a patient in the psych ward and you're not well. So it was like this weird, <laughs> this weird relationship from the beginning. But then I got to know him and I got to know the real person outside of the psych ward.
4: Kevin kind of took Margaret's cousin under his wing after that. And through that, he got to know her entire family. He was crushing really hard and he kept asking her out. A couple months later, he was released into a halfway house.
2: Kevin asked me out uh, throughout all those months. And then finally, uh, towards the end of October, I said, Yeah, sure. Let's go on a date. And so <laughs> it was the worst
5: date known to mankind, humankind. <laughs> the
2: worst date I've ever. The worst
5: been. date ever for anyone <laughs> in the world.
4: You can't say something like that and not back it up. Kevin and Margaret can really back it up. We'll find out more after a quick break.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
4: So Kevin and Margaret really were on the worst date ever. Kevin showed up at Margaret's apartment with a giant duffel bag filled with most of his belongings. She didn't know what to say. What would you say? She asked what the hell he was carrying.
5: I said, Margaret, it's a funny story. When you leave the halfway home on a Friday... And you go out past 9 p.m., you you made reservations at 9. The thing is you can't come back to the halfway home until Monday. And I dropped the bag, and I opened my arms, and I was like, ta-da. And she goes, oh, hell no. (laughs) And I go, Margaret, I will take this bag. I will lay across the street on those stairs on Lombard Steps, and I will lay there with this bag as my pillow with no blanket, and I'll go to sleep tonight. But we have to go on this date. I came a long way. And she goes, oh, God, fine.
4: They stash the bag away and walk down the street to a restaurant. It was this old mob hangout called Cafe Sport,
5: where you don't order. They look at you, they judge you, and they order for you, which is nerve-wracking because I have lots of allergies. And we get there, and the tables are the size of like the seats of small chairs. And they get Margaret an eggplant parmesan dish, which is very small, simple, quaint, fits on the table. But this guy clearly didn't like me. I was the new guy. She'd clearly been there before. And he gets me a giant bed of spaghetti, a mountain of marinara sauce, a huge uncracked lobster, and a votive and a candle on a plate and boiling butter, and an oddly cut lemon wedge. And I'm thinking, I'm done for. I'm wearing my only good white shirt. I bought it Old Navy, on sale, at the clearance rack for $5. I live off at $3 a day because of SSI. That's a two-day shirt. I'm panicking that if I get anything on this shirt, she's going to think I'm a slob. I cracked the tail of the lobster, mariner all over my w- white shirt. She thinks I'm a slob in the first five minutes. I have this inner dialogue. I was like, Kevin, do something classy right now. And that's when I took the oddly cut lemon wedge. I picked it up. And I looked at it and I looked at Margaret's eyes. Almond brown, sexy and cool. Oh, God. That's true. I sh- threw my arm forward and squeezed the entirety of the lemon as hard as I could inside my fist. And I've missed my plate. I've missed her plate, and I'm watching as the stream of lemon juice flies directly into her left eye. And it just kept going like a fire hose. And mascara is running down her face. Uh, She looks like, you know, the band Kiss. And that is when I hear this lady next to us go, Miss, are you okay? And I turned to her, and I was like, lady, it's a date. It's going south. You're not helping. And I said, Kevin, do something classier right now. And I went for the plate of boiling butter... And I tip the plate. I watch as two droplets of boiling butter fly in slow motion between her blouse onto her chest and they burn her. And she screams. It blistered oh, It blistered. It, it, was, it was really so bad, bad. It was like oh more my. than two drops. I it, well, okay.
4: And then Margaret says the only two words you do not want to hear on a first date check, please.
5: And I thought, this is it. It's done. We're not going to get married. We're not going to have, you know. I, I imagine a full family, six kids, like, no. my, like my grandpa had, you know, three boys and three girls. And I was imagining this whole future life and this dog named Max and everything. And and he was a Sharpay. and I was imagining all this whole future, and I thought it was all gone. And so we walked back to the apartment. And, of course, she's walking like a mile in front of me.
2: I remember he had the bag, and I thought, oh, my God. what? Am well, I we get back to the, the house.
5: Money. That was the bag. And so She remembers the bags in the house. <laughs> and, and I the-
2: thought it was really awkward that... I had to go back into my apartment with <laughs> him and his bag. And I can't let him sleep on the steps outside. Well, you so, could have.
5: You could have. I would have done
2: it. Yeah. Well, and I didn't want to be in the apartment with him. And it was just awkward to say, okay, sleep on my couch. And, and so it just was weird all around. So I thought, okay, you know what? Let's just see what we could do to salvage this. So we took the elevator upstairs to the roof. And Kevin said, oh, uh, God. Are, are you, you going to throw me throw off? Throw me off? I was roof? freaking out. Yeah. And I said, no, I, let's just go up to the roof. and And I was thinking – Well, at least, like, we're still outside. We get some fresh air. We don't have to be inside and have awkward silence, and he's on the couch. Anyway, so we get upstairs, and at this point, I'm just so exhausted from all the evening's activities. (laughs) I said, all right, just lay down and just relax, sit, whatever, and then tell me your story. And he did. He started to tell me Everything about the diagnoses from the adoption, his whole life, to the diagnoses, to the attempt off the bridge and another attempt after that. And, you know, ha- about his suicidal ideation and its chronic suicidality, but also about bipolar disorder and mental illness. We, we chatted for a couple of hours and we both fell asleep on the roof. And I remember waking up at like five in the morning and just thinking, oh, that, you know, we really turned that date around. That's the reason why I said yes to the second date and got to know Kevin. Got to see him past all of the mental illness and and the suicidality and his past. And it was much more of a learning experience, I think, for me to know and meet this guy that was not uh, ashamed of his mental health issues and didn't shy away from it. He never silenced the fact that he was suicidal and chronically suicidal. And he would say it like, you know, just as anybody would say, hey, I have a broken arm. He would say, I have a broken brain. And I think about suicide on a daily basis with absolutely no shame. And it was really brave and courageous behavior like that, that he displayed on a daily basis that, actually made me really fall in love with him because, you know, my background's in finance and we don't really come across a lot of people in finance (laughs) that are willing to share their weaknesses and to be courageous enough to talk about, you know, mental health issues, let alone suicidality. So that was really new for me and it was also educational and beautiful. After that evening, I realized well, I wasn't scared at all. I was curious, and I wanted to learn more. And I felt like this man before me was the first person in my life, my entire life, that made me feel like I want to become a better person.
4: Margaret was all in after that. Kevin was pretty much the opposite of cool for their entire relationship. Remember, he'd already planned their wedding, all their children's names, and their short Still, he did manage to wait two years before proposing. Exactly two years. He had a countdown going, and he planned to do it at exactly 12.01 a.m. on their two-year anniversary.
5: I run into the bedroom, like, huffing and puffing. I go, Mark, Mark. Mar, Mar, I'm just like an woke idiot. I walk up. her up. She goes, she goes, what, is there a fire? And <laughs> the first thing he said, is there a fire? And I get down on one knee, and I say, "Mark, will you do me the honor of becoming my— And she goes, No! No, 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 no. <laughs> She's shaking like, no, no, not like this. Not like this. And I was like, wife? And she goes, no, 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 no. I said, are you saying no? And she goes, come back to bed and ask me in the morning. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What if she says no? She fell soundly asleep. I'm freaking out. I didn't sleep a wink. I'm like, oh, God. She's going to wake up and say no. She's going to wake up and say no. It's all I can think about. And so I'm lying there, and I was, like, staring at her, and she wakes up, and I don't know, it was, like, 6-something in the morning. Freaked out because yeah, you freaked were out. staring at she me. She was like, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? <laughs> and I was like, um, did, did you think about what I asked you last night? And she goes, yes. You know, just <laughs> basically, <Fine>. basically basically, <laughs> you couldn't have picked a worse way to propose to me, <laughs> but yes. And, and you know. That, that I was, was, was just glad
0: <laughs> the house wasn't on fire. <laughs>
4: And even though that proposal was almost as bad as their first date, the wedding itself was beautiful.
2: We had a big Roman Catholic ceremony in St. Cecilia's in San Francisco. That's the church and school that Kevin grew up at and going to. Thanks, senior, Herman. (laughs) We had about 250 people at the wedding, and then we had our reception at the Olympic Club, which is a golf course overlooking the Pacific Ocean church ceremony was really it was religious we knelt the whole time we had a a really good friend of ours his father played the irish bagpipes and walked us all out of the church and it was so powerful and beautiful and it was the perfect ending to a very solemn quiet wedding ended out with like a big belting irish bagpiping session um
5: thanks mr o'leary
2: it was gorgeous and then to pay homage to my heritage we had spanish music at the olympic club during our reception with our 250 closest family and friends and we had a flamenco band yeah. spanish music a lot of gypsy kings just last week we were in san francisco and we had dinner with some friends who were guests at our wedding and they were telling us it was the most beautiful wedding they'd ever been to
4: they've been married now for 12 years And in that time, Margaret and Kevin have learned a lot about each other and about mental illness and how to cope with having a spouse who will live in and out of the psych ward for the rest of their life. More after a quick break.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
0: Kevin
4: still deals with his mental health issues on a daily basis. He's been in the psych ward a total of eight times.
5: Five with you.
2: Six, including the third, but yeah.
5: Are we measuring our, our marriage by how
4: many no, side courses happened?
2: No, 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 not at all. What did
5: your mom say when you first started dating me? Tell <laughs> that story. My mom
2: said, look, I love Kevin. He's a really good guy, <laughs> but I don't want you to have a, a really hard life because you will. If you marry somebody with a mental illness, it's going to be a really tough road. And she was right. The one thing she left out, which she couldn't possibly have known, was the fact that it's so worth it, not just because I love you, but it's also, I think in you, I've found a partner that, will fight for his wellness and for our wellness as a couple. The one thing I tell couples that ask for advice is the trust has to be there. Without that trust, it's not going to work. And I mean, like, implicit trust. Kevin certainly trusts me to tell him the truth about something. And even if it sometimes may sound like a criticism, because I get annoyed, too. I'm just a human. Like, I do get annoyed and I get frustrated. And sometimes I'm not patient. But you know what? That's okay, because I get to be like that, you know? Like, there's a lot going on. I think he also trusts that when I say, hey, Kev, you're operating below or above the bar, he knows I'm I'm not saying that to get something out of it. I'm saying it to help him, right? Because it ultimately, at the end of the day, it's affecting him. And he cares. He cares to be well. And I think that's bottom line for us.
5: One of the best things Margaret does is is she'll she will have coping tools that... Benefit my brain. So if I'm depressed, it's like okay, let's go eat some broccoli or some cashews that are low-grade antidepressant, or get out in the sun because that's also vitamin D is the low-grade antidepressant. Or did you take your vitamin D supplement today? You know these kinds of things. Or drop
2: and give me fifty. Or I I was about to say I have a toolbox, like an arsenal of tools and resources and coping mechanisms and medicines and vitamin everything. It's like it's literally like a toolbox (laughs) of things to help me help him. And I had to learn this along the way. Nobody taught me how to be a caregiver as an impacted family member. I did. (laughs) You did. You did. You did. It organically happened. You kind of have to figure things out as you go along and along the way. And that's really hard because a lot of it is trial and error. I'm really involved in getting up a group of folks called the impacted family members who are essentially caregivers who have been impacted through the American Association of Suicidology and we're working with several mental health groups because I think that impacted family members are the most overlooked. I think- They get uh, lost. They get lost. There's yeah. not enough resources and tools out there for us. We are essentially each other's support groups, but we need a little bit more than that. We need to strengthen ourselves and we need to find our own resilience because self-care is paramount. I get questions from wives everywhere, even mothers and fathers, parents. And they say, how do you do it when he's in this stage, in this phase, when he's so manic and he doesn't listen to How do you do it? And you know what? The one thing I say to the first thing I do is self-care. I have to take care of me. And sometimes that's, you know, going to yoga class when it's not the most opportune moment or taking some time out for yourself and just being by yourself and meditating or just watching a movie. Sometimes it's eating a bowl of ice cream or Having social time with your friends and spending a little time apart to recognize what, what you have and the value of it. So there's, there's so many things in my arsenal, but I will say self-care is at the top of that toolbox.
4: So you have your toolbox when something goes wrong. But I wanted to know if you could do anything beforehand, if you could do anything to prepare for an episode.
2: You really can't. I pay really close attention to him, his moods, and we stay in really close touch. If I'm not traveling with him, which is more often the case, then we're in touch throughout the day. And I tell him, you're a little bit past the top bar or you're a little bit kind of operating below the the bottom bar. And because Kevin, I know this is the one thing I can say, he wants his wellness so badly and he fights for it. If I tell him you're operating too low and he's not getting in the shower on a daily basis or sometimes twice a day because, you know, he's working out or whatever and he's not brushing his teeth twice a day, I'll tell
5: him. One of the first things to go in in a depression is hygiene. It's well known, but nobody talks about it. It's internally known in the mental health field, but nobody outside the mental health field is willing to talk about it because it's embarrassing. That's why we see a lot of individuals that may look dirty who have mental struggles because they can't focus on getting in the shower or cleaning their fingernails they're b- because they're barely functioning and their brain is warped. It's trying to take them down. It's a place where you have love for no one and no thing. You can't appreciate, love, care for anyone, not, not yourself, not anyone. I remember when she figured it out, she's like, Kevin, do you love our dog, Max? And I was like, "Ah, we can give him away. And she's like, do you love your father, Patrick? Eh, I don't love anybody. Uh, what do you want to do besides caring for your family? I just want to go move into the woods and live in the woods in a a, a cabin I'll build myself.
2: (laughs) Kevin doesn't even camp.
5: (laughs) And she was like, you know there's spiders in the woods right now, and I I have a a terrible arachnophobia. You know there's spiders in the woods? I was like, I'll just, I'll eat them. You know, it just, it didn't make, it was all...
4: I knew, that's when I knew
5: something was wrong. when, When I say I'll eat spiders...
4: And that's when they know that Kevin needs to check himself into the psych ward for a while. So that's what they do. And what do you guys see for your future? I Know Kevin, you had all of this planned out six children, a dog.
5: Yeah, the dog.
2: Well, we had one, we had a miscarriage,
4: yeah. Um,
5: and um, then we weren't able to get pregnant after that, but we're we're, right for medical
2: medication issues, yeah. But maybe our next project
5: (laughs) Project. (laughs) will be a baby.
2: (laughs) Everything's a project in my book. I don't know, maybe. You know, we're thinking about it. I think Kevin's biological clock is ticking. He's been mentioning (laughs) a baby a lot lately.
4: (laughs) In the meantime, Kevin and Margaret have plenty to keep them busy.
2: I ended up reprioritizing my life and decided that instead of helping make millionaires into billionaires, I'm going to help my husband save more lives. And I'm going to help him help heal more people. And I'm going to help him encourage help-seeking behavior.
4: Together, they run the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation, working on projects to normalize the conversation around mental health, wellness, and suicide prevention.
2: We're very involved with the American Association of Suicidology. We're involved in the International Bipolar Foundation.
5: Zero Suicides. Zero
2: Suicides Movement. Mental Health America. We support them. I mean, we can go on and on and on. What we ended up doing was making the documentary Suicide, the Ripple Effect. Kevin started a YouTube channel. We have a pretty good following on social media, and we're working with influencers not just in the social media space but in the world essentially globally to really affect change and start helping people share their stories responsibly but also support research efforts. We're huge suicide prevention and mental health research supporters worked on the legislative efforts to get the net up on the Golden Gate Bridge now it's going up in 2021 there won't be any deaths on the Golden Gate Bridge
4: every time they've had to check Kevin into the psych ward every time Margaret has had to hold his hand through recovery their marriage has gotten stronger each time they've done it they've learned something new about themselves and their marriage but that doesn't mean it isn't still hard of course it's hard
2: and it's not only hard because Kevin has mental health issues. It's just, it's hard because we have been married for 12 years now. We have real issues, too, that any marriage would go through. We, we believe in therapy, and we believe in communication. We really talk about stuff. Sometimes it's really hard to talk about some of the things that we have to talk about. But we do because I look at him, and I know that it's he's worth it and that we're worth it.
5: We take our vows very seriously. I'll be here. She'll be here. We got this.
4: Mental health is complicated and messy, For all of us. A high percentage, 70 to 80 percent, of marriages fail when one of the spouses is going through severe mental health issues, particularly bipolar disorder. But Kevin and Margaret are committed to making it work. It's part of their promise to each other.
2: Our marriage is real and it is not easy, but no marriage is easy and it shouldn't be. It's work and that's okay. But... It is a real marriage with real marriage marital problems. But it's also a real marriage with real love and real resilience. And I think so long as you want it to work, it will. And we're a true team. And we started off with a really strong friendship too and we have that foundation that we built on which really helps you know it helps with the trust and it helps with the authenticity of our marriage because people really close to us know that sometimes it's really it's really hard
5: and Margaret and I made a deal a long time ago that no matter what we went through we would weather the storm because of our unconditional love for each other and i think that that is why we stay together that is how we stay together we just we always go back to we will do this We will fight this. We will be in this together.
6: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. With special thanks to Kevin and Margaret Hines. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Ramsey Young. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klein. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's j o at committedpodcast.com. If you would like to know more about the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation, please visit their site at kmhinesfoundation.org. If you or someone you know are experiencing severe depression or suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can contact them 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's
3: biggest paranormal podcast
6: is going on a road trip.
2: It's Zumo Play.